0: Okay, so we, we are calling this time today um, a faith shaped by doubt and difficulty. So in our deep dive into the Gospel of John, we're going to begin looking at a section uh, in the Gospel of John today that most scholars refer to as coming from a source that is no longer available to us called the Book of Signs. In the gospel itself, the story of turning water into wine, and I want to say here that it was not until after we had finished writing this class today and talking back and (laughs) forth that we realized that we had not included actually reading the story of water into wine. So I'm assuming that most of you know it, but we will start with it next week. It just
1: forces extra innings. We're just going to be talking about this for another Sunday.
0: Uh, for another yeah. Sunday. So give us a chance to have another book more. Yeah. So uh, the book of signs, which makes up about half of the gospel of John, are stories that were created by the author of this part of John to communicate something that this community had come to experience and to believe about Jesus. So in doing this work, on the Gospel of John, it has caused me personally to sharpen my awareness about how faith is formed.
2: Mm.
0: What was going on that caused this version of the Jesus story, which is so different from the other three that we have, what was happening that caused this version of the story to come into existence? Well, there were several things that were going on. For one thing, Jesus had brought a new awareness about inclusivity and equality. The culture and the religion was very patriarchal. It was very exclusive with religious leaders saying who was in and who was out and having the power uh, to get money by saying who was in. There was also a great conflict within the Jewish community about embracing this new vision that Jesus had brought. And consequently, the Jews who did embrace this part of the Jesus story felt forced out of their own tradition. Now, that will become relevant for us before we're done today. And furthermore, there was a um, theology or meritocracy, which is basically meaning that... You, If you were blessed materially and if you were physically healthy that was a sign that God must like you a whole lot and if you were not blessed materially and if you were not physically well then that was a sign of God's displeasure Mm -hmm. and of course another way that the religious establishment could get money was by taking some of these people and pronouncing them clean And thereby, you could get back into the religious community if you just had enough cash to give it to us.
1: It sounds like it's still happening today. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So what these times in ordinary life are about is about our ongoing faith formation. Um, And in order for us to more consciously participate in how our faith is formed going forward, it's likely going to be helpful for us to become aware of and stay conscious of how the faith that we have got shaped, and how we can move from one one level of faith development uh, to another. So, um, as long as we cling to outmoded or childish images of God, we cannot become mature spiritually. So, in the Gospel of John, we see a community of faith that is taking a developmental leap forward because... The faith they had no longer worked for them. It was a painful time. Doubt and difficulty played major roles in the creation of this community. And in order to embrace the new values that we are going to run into in John, they had to leave what was familiar with to them. They had to leave their centuries-old religious structures many of them had to leave their families. Um, we'll get to that as we go on. It it, it was a wrenching time for them. And as I currently see it, the culture in which we have grown up is largely one that has been framed by four characteristics. First of all, it has been framed or created by a white male and often violently so patriarchy. Second, it's marked by a white male folk religion that privileges white people. And third, it is dualistic in nature where we, are, where we are just soaked in an either or us or them mentality and kind of thinking. And fourth, it is marked by a form of capitalism that is shaped by those preceding three factors. That is, it is a culture that explicitly teaches us sometimes God helps those who help themselves. By the way, that phrase is not in the Bible, (laughs) just to make sure, because a lot of people would think it is. But we do live in a mentality that says that no one need need be poor or needy if they just work hard enough. Mm -hmm. You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So the community that produced the fourth gospel was shaped by a very similar set of values, patriarchy, a religion that privileged a chosen few, a very tribal mentality, and one where those who did well did so because they were the beneficiaries of God's blessing and favor. Now, I don't know if you pay attention to the announcement slides that are up every week. I try to have new cartoons there every Sunday. But last week, the announcement slide said that the title of today's talk would be When God Wears a
2: Dress.
0: (laughs) Now, the reason for that will become apparent as we go forward. But um, in both Sanford's book and in John Shelby Spong's book, this first sign, the one of turning water into wine, is one where there's a big emphasis on the feminine. And Holly's going to speak to that.
1: that I, I, I kind of ran with that, that original title. And I liked your title of God Wears a Dress. Provocative, no, nothing like you normally are. But, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that this idea of imagining God as she or feminine is a necessary move if we are to begin to reimagine God at all. We so easily, myself included, slide into God the Father, God the all-powerful, who protects and favors us. It's an image that needs shedding. We are so conditioned by our initial learnings about God, about the world. A new relationship to the sacred is absolutely necessary if we want to experience a radical shift in consciousness that the Gospel of John is about. This artist that I have grown to love Harmonia Rosales is doing just that. She rejects what she calls the stale, pale, male images of God. And she takes um, these classic works and repaints them, usually with black women, as images of God. I have some friends right now, several of them, who are currently walking through gender identity transitions with their children. These are parents whose compassion and commitment to them, to their children, is unquestionable. It's 100%. And yet they have also known and raised their child their whole lives as one person and having to get to know them in a new way. So even with hearts full of compassion and wanting to support their children, even with the desire to be for their kids, there's also grief and there's confusion at times. I don't take for granted for one second that it's difficult to adapt to a gender transition for everyone involved, even the child, especially the child. I think we can expect this as we reimagine or re-envision God that we may have grief. And being open to the grief also allows us to be open to something new. Both can exist at once. Some of us in here are very comfortable praying our fathers to a masculine God. Some of us may be really at ease with the feminine masculine balance of God, or very comfortable holding the fact that God doesn't have a face at all, or maybe that there is no God. (laughs) We're probably all over the map in this room. No matter where we are on this spectrum of belief, though, there was probably a time in each of our lives when our belief changed from one thing to another. And I think in this moment, as we kind of radically reimagine God and the feminine face of that, allow that part of us that already went through a change to be with us now. So if it was a little kid, if it was a 15-year-old, if it was a 25-year-old, a 50-year-old, allow that person who experienced that change to be here now. I think we too, Bill and I are also reintroducing ourselves to new ideas about God and Jesus. And we're at very different points in our life. So we're in this too. It's not like we have it figured out altogether and we're just here to drop some knowledge on you. I think we're in process too. I am being reshaped by this work.
0: I've got it figured out.
1: Okay, good. Well, so we'll just turn. T- what did you say you wanted me to call you? Oh, masterful, wise one. Yeah, is that, was that it?
0: Worshipful Lord and Master. Oh, I'm sorry,
1: Worshipful Lord and Master. I'm so glad you have it figured out. I will worship at the feet of the white male in the room. Okay, (laughs) now we've got that out of the way. (laughs) This is a process of being reborn. To be born again, to be born at all, is inherently feminine. When we talk about individuation, or the psychological and spiritual process that Um, puts us as Sanford says, John Sanford who wrote Mystical Christianities, in touch with what we are all about. Our relationship to the feminine is of paramount importance, whether we're male or female, or both. This may be a strong statement, but I think every single one of us alive and present in our culture is in touch with the masculine. We all have a strong sense of the masculine in this culture. I'll get into that in a minute, but the kind of masculinity we mostly know is what we would call toxic masculinity. These times call for an emphasis on the feminine, the emancipation of women from masculine domination and patriarchal values, and the end of a social structure that's driven by hierarchy, coercion, and violence. I am not saying this is the end of men. Do not worry. (laughs) We need men, just as we need emphatically, we need women. We need the feminine. A patriarchal image of God is quite simply not open to everyone. There are many uh, particularly feminist theologians who have abandoned this patriarchal God altogether, some who refuse to use the word God because of what it evokes and use goddess instead. It's probably not helpful to be binary either way, to use goddess instead of God or God instead of goddess. Somehow we've got to bring these together. One scholar says that theology never actually assigned a sex to God, that God is pure spirit and spirit does not have a gender. I read an article in the New York Times some time ago that presented, the title of it is, Is God Transgender? Yahweh, it's often spelled like this, is kind of like an anagram that pronounced in reverse is something like who he, not like my Texas-accented Yahweh, (laughs) but it's more who he, in reverse. So the hidden name of God ends up being more like, let me get up to myself, he she. That's what who he means. Yahweh is also, I'm so Texan, Yahweh, (laughs) I'm not doing the Hebrew some justice here, but Yahweh is also breath. And the last time I checked, we all breathe. Man, woman, animal, plant, we all breathe. It's not gendered. The mystic poet Kabir says, God is the breath inside the breath. This is a line that I return to again and again. Just breathe. It reminds me that as long as I am in touch with that breath, I am also in touch with the great mystery that connects us all to absolutely everything.
0: So, um, there are some things about the gospel of John that I think it's important constantly to keep in mind if we're going to hear the message of John correctly. And the first of these things is that the gospel of John is a thoroughly Jewish Hard for us who grew up in the Christian church hearing the Bible read or studying the Bible to keep this in mind. When John was written, it was written as a liturgical guidebook for Jewish worship. There was no Christianity as we understand Christianity when John was written. This is a thoroughly Jewish book. Second... It grew out of forms of Jewish mysticism that were present in the first century. Consequently, the picture of Jesus that emerges in the Gospel of John is not as one who is a visitor from some other realm, but it is as of a person in whom a new consciousness of God came and then was expressed Through Rituals of Jewish Mysticism. And next week when we get deeper into this first sign, I'll talk more about what that ritual was. He is speaking a mystical language, or the writer puts a mystical language into the mouth of John in in this gospel. I want to read you a quote from John Spong. John's gospel is about life, expanded life, abundant life. Ultimately, eternal life, but not in the typical manner these words have been understood. So next week, when we deal with the nature of the miraculous and with miracles in talking about the water and the wine story, I'll have a better opportunity to illustrate some aspects of this Jewish mysticism. Third, the Gospel of John was written in different layers by different authors, Over a period of about 30 years, I intended today to bring two of the three volumes that Raymond Brown has written on the Gospel of John. Everybody knows what a commentary is, right? A commentary is a book that some biblical scholar has written about a book in the Bible so that you will have a verse-by-verse exposition. Raymond Brown's introduction to the Gospel of John is 600 pages. Then he has two volumes, each 600 pages, that cover the Gospel of John in its entirety. It's probably the the authority or the the scholar on uh, John today. These books don't make it into the curriculum of most Sunday schools, or they get talked about, because for a complicated set of reasons. But... Raymond Brown is convinced that there were at least four authors who were involved in the construction of composing John. So we have been trained, conditioned, to see John through lenses that were given to us that were really created sometime in the fourth century. Um, Some of us have heard all of our church-going lies that Jesus was fully human and fully divine either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, which we still recite in our church, nobody who lived at the time of John would have understood what those words meant. Hmm. That's purely something that comes from the 4th century, not from the Gospel of John. So I want to quote Spong again. The followers of Jesus had to learn how to live apart from Judaism. I hope you see the relevance of this. I'm going to refer mm-hmm. to it later. We have a split coming in the Methodist Church. Okay? Let me say that again. The followers of Jesus had to learn how to live apart from Judaism. That was more than some Jewish members of the Johannine community could tolerate. So mm-hmm. they split off and returned to the synagogue, or they went back to an earlier level of faith development. To continue spong, I am increasingly convinced that the followers of Jesus today must learn how to live apart from Christianity at least the kind of creedal orthodoxy that through the centuries Christianity has unfortunately become. That is more than some Christians today can tolerate and so many split off into fundamentalist sects. Mm. So I would suggest that a contemporary example of this kind of splitting is what you see going on in the Methodist Church today. Some people in the Methodist Church cannot tolerate the notion of full inclusion. And so, instead of going to another development of faith, of faith, they retrench and they go back.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Fifth, mysticism and literalism are mutually exclusive. The very essence of Mysticism is that words cannot capture it. And I'm convinced that we won't be able to gain the truth that John is trying to convey if we confuse storytelling and parable with literal events. This is extremely important to know as we go forward. And next Sunday when we talk about the water into wine story, we are not talking about a literal event. It is a parable. So,
1: but we will bring wine.
0: We will? Is this a promise? I don't think you can do that here. So in this, uh, in this first sign, we're introduced to a character who is referred to as the mother of the Lord. She's not called Mary here. She appears one other time in the Gospel of John, and that's at the foot of the cross. Still not referred to as Mary just as the mother of the Lord. So in both places, she functions as mothers do in many families. Mm -hmm. So here, on one side, we have six stone jars that are meant for the Jewish rite of purification. That's on one side. Then on the other side, I forget who the painter is who did this, we have the celebration of new life that Jesus came to bring, and that's what the wedding symbolizes, new life, all right? So on the one side, you have the rites of purification from Judaism. On the other side, you have new life, and in the middle stands, this is an authentic photograph. (laughs) (laughs) On the other side stands the mother of Jesus. Now, why is she important in this story? Why would she show up again at the foot of the cross? Hmm. Because the moment she tells the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do, the water changes to wine. She's the connecting character in the story. It's a well, great story.
1: It would be awesome if my kids listened to me like that. Do whatever. I tell you, okay, we got a long way to go. Um, Who was it that said we? You quoted this person recently in a podcast that said we have to know God without God.
0: Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah,
1: that's kind of how I'm thinking through your words right now. Um,
0: We have to learn to live with God before God, without God.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a great, great line. But there's so many references to God as feminine in the scripture. Besides Yahweh, which is both, the most important personification of God is that of wisdom, or Sophia. Then there's the image of spring, which is a season of fertility, the she-bear, a mother eagle. These are all in scripture. God carries the people of Israel in the hidden place or in the divine womb In fact, the Hebrew root word for mercy or compassion is rechim, meaning womb. Mercy, compassion means womb. I want us to get that. (laughs) The Greek for grace, charis, is feminine. Catherine Keller, one of my favorite feminist uh, theologian, expresses that the nature of God is inherently feminine in that it is and emerges from this creative dark abyss. The feminine is also chaos, and it sets the stage for creativity and order. The full description of the divine balances both, the masculine, the feminine, chaos and order, creativity and destruction. These are all inherent in sacred mystery. So briefly, I want to go through a diagram of the continuum of masculine and feminine. We have, on the one hand, toxic masculinity and healthy masculinity, We also have toxic femininity and healthy femininity. Toxic masculinity is expressed by aggression and domination. When chaos gets out of balance, it expresses itself as violence, which is the masculine principle. Similarly, when order is over the top, it becomes controlling and rigid. Then healthy masculinity is assertive without being unkind It uses its size, strength, and power not to diminish but to build up. It is protective without being patronizing. It doesn't mansplain. It's humble without being withdrawing. Toxic femininity um, is jealous, resentful, manipulative. It can become excessively needy or extremely critical of others. It does not take personal responsibility and it blames others and often acts helpless and weak. Healthy femininity, on the other hand, is loving, empathetic, compassionate, and supportive. She knows how to ask for what she needs, is confident and vulnerable, trusting, and creative. Ideally, we find harmony with our masculine and feminine energies, whether we identify as male or female. I hope that that is clear. I'm not talking about man-woman. I'm talking about the energies that are inherent in all of us and finding balance. John the Baptist, it was said, he, um, he, his beheading was ordered by Herod's stepdaughter Herodias. I wonder if he named her after him, Herod Herodias, but it was his stepdaughter. Okay, anyway, I'm just trying to find some.
0: You know, (laughs) Um, when we were talking about John the Baptist, I didn't get to use my, one of my favorite lines about, do you know what John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? The middle name. Their middle name.
1: Oh, I, I, I,
0: <laughs> You don't hear stuff like this in other Sunday yeah. school classes. Yeah.
1: Oh, man. So anyways, <laughs> a, a, a woman ordered John the Baptist beheading. Uh, it's said that John the Baptist was very ascetic, um, different than Jesus, who kind of liked to party, and was probably an extremist, and he was evidently not a friend of women. I mean, I'm just thinking if your execution is ordered by a woman, you're not in their favor. And she looks rather pleased with herself in this painting, just saying. Quite to the contrary, Jesus is depicted as a friend to women and men alike, which was not actually a consideration from those who who we consider today our greatest Western minds. I'm talking about Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, brilliant thinkers who set up the seeds for democracy and um, societies ruled by just fair and just laws. These people shaped the society we live in, but they had the opinion that women were inferior to men. These guys shaped the society that Jesus was born into. They had great ideas, but ultimately they were wrong about women and saw them only in regards to their usefulness to men. In The Kingdom Within, John Sanford writes, This is another book that you've mentioned by him, and I've um, been reading it. Jesus was deeply in touch with the life process, as is seen in his use of nature illustrations for his parables. He was close to children, another sign of good feminine development. His eros development is shown in his capacity for extraordinarily deep personal relationships, and most supremely in his final great act of caring on the cross. This is the moment when he whispers probably in deep pain, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And his final act of nonviolence in the most violent of situations was an act of grace. I'm really not sure if I could do this. Even though Plato was wrong about women, he described the realization of eros, or love, as loving love for love's sake not for personal gain, but just being in love with love itself. To love like this takes a person with a well-developed ego who can cope with life's twists and turns. This is the kind of person Jesus was, who can say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not driven by ego. But he had a strong ego because he could lay it down. Jesus is this whole picture. He's a fully realized person. He was assertive when he needs to be. This is a little diagram of the um, intuitive, sensing, thinking, feeling uh, paradigm that we tend to all fall upon with one strength in one and maybe weaknesses in another. But the fully realized person is kind of balanced right in the middle like this. Uh, John Sanford believed that Jesus was a balance of all of these cognitive functions. He was truly unique in the historical context that he lived. Stanford guesses that, oh, I just said that. <laughs> Let me not repeat myself. We will see that when we get into the first miracle or sign that a healthy relationship with his mother plays out. That's kind of what I believe Sanford and Spong both point out, is that his ability to kind of take orders from or follow the lead of a woman demonstrates his humility, his, his humility without being patronizing. He respected her. He didn't reject the language of God the Father, but instead he transformed the picture of that father from a patriarchal, vengeful God to a father who is soft and strong, who he called Dad, Daddy or Abba. He calls his God, Daddy. If Jesus had used any other parent or gender metaphor for God at that time, he he would have lost his audience. He wouldn't have been understood. It's likely that at that time only a man could have subverted ideas about masculinity and this patriarchal God. The relevance for our time is to lean into the challenges that we face to radically shift our ideas about the sacred. If we are to imagine God beyond masculine and feminine, beyond even personification, and certainly beyond a separate entity, and if we radically reimagine our ideas about God, I think we can also radically reimagine ideas about ourself and then about the communities we live in. All of these things are in- intertwined. If we limit Jesus' teachings or his personhood to the framework of Christianity and to historically conditioned ideas about God, we miss the breadth and the depth of what he said.
0: So I, I will probably um, say this again next week. This is not my notes. When i was in the seminary and we were studying uh, the gospel of john and we got to this part the first of the signs in the gospel of john our professor said that one of the metaphorical importance of this particular story is that the author of john is saying pay attention i'm going to blow your mind i'm going to change your whole way of thinking about things. And that's why alcohol is used in this story. Wine. When you drink wine, it changes you. It changes the way you see things, the way you feel and so forth. Jesus was a wine glutton. <laughs> that's what his enemies called him. And the the, the the placement of this particular story at the beginning of John is important. And um, I thought. I I want to say something about what I think this section of the gospel is is all about. It's about how we grow and develop. Because what you see in the gospel of John is theological reflection in action. John reflects a community that is reworking what they understand about Jesus, what they understand about their Judaism, what they understand about themselves. So John was written by Jewish people who wanted to belong. That's what we all want. We all want to belong. And yet, they felt called to something more. So do we. That's why we're here. And you know what it's like for two things to be in tension, right? Something in us wants to be honest, and something in us also wants to be liked. We want to be good, and we also want to be thought good by other people. We want to be consistent, and we also want to keep growing. And when enough of these conflicting desires reach critical mass inside of us, we have a crisis of faith. We have an identity crisis. Mm. We move from one stage of faith development to another because we have these crises of faith all along the way. We start at the level where my group is right and everybody else is wrong. This is the stage of simplicity. There are millions, perhaps billions, who are still at this level of faith development on our globe today. This first stage of development is all about dualism and it, it is about dependence. The next stage of faith is about pragmatism and about independence. It's called complexity. Whereas we were drawn to authority figures who taught us or told us what to think, now we want to think for ourselves. And in our culture, stage two religion, this complexity thing, is where you go to church And you hear sermons about three easy steps to marital bliss, five certain cures for depression, the seven keys to biblical prosperity, and Mm -hmm. all that other stuff. But real life doesn't work like that. Real life is messy. (laughs) And so um, we get into the mysterious, into the complex. Life is much less formulaic, much messier than The simple stage wants us to believe. So if you're going to enter the land of mystical stuff, you have to be willing to be perplexed and letting that be okay. So this third stage is that of perplexity, or as the Buddhist nun Pema Chodron writes, it's learning to be comfortable with uncertainty. And then there is a fourth stage, according to this particular model, called harmony. And this is what you find in John. It's the arena of non-duality. It's where mysticism is a possibility. Now, you know there are many, many models of growth and development. This is a rather simple one. I got it from Brian McLaren. Mm. Um, Brian is himself an interesting uh example of somebody who went from being an evangelical fundamentalist to now being on the faculty of the living school at Richard Rohr's organization. So you can read his books, I don't recommend this, but you can read in his books his development all along the way, from one level of faith to another. And um as you know, I love Rich Father Richard Rohr too and his model of faith development is really simple. It's got just two stages. He calls the first, the first half of life and the second, the second half of life stages. Now, my problem with this is that faith development is not a matter of chronology. Hmm. I know plenty of people who are in their 60s and 70s who are still at first stage level of faith development. They've never grown at, at, at all so um, the first stage of life is where we develop a container to put things that's what the first two stages are about and the second half is where we craft or we discover the things to put in the container Um, so don't stay at adolescent faith development there's a lot more we could say about the mystical nature of john and about mysticism itself and we'll circle back on some of this before we're done But the point now is that John is an illustration of what the mystics all through the ages, what spiritual teachers all through the ages have always taught us. And that is we move from one developmental stage to another through either great difficulty, the death of a partner or whatever, fatal illness, or we move from one stage to another through mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: having a daily spiritual practice.
1: That's always the answer, Helen. Yeah, it is, it <laughs> is the
0: answer. It is absolutely the answer. Yeah. You're not going to make this just by coming here and listening to me or Holly. You're not going to do it. It won't happen to any of us. There has to be a daily involvement in What do I need to do to move to one level to another? How do I measure this growth? How is this happening for me? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom I uh, quoted also uh, said that we have to learn to live with religionless Christianity. Mm -hmm. What did he mean by that? He meant don't tie it to a creedal belief that you can't move from, that you can't grow from. That's what you see in fundamentalists. Now there's some key words that you're going to hear in the Gospel of John again and again. And among these key words are truth, life, freedom. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And it is the quest for these things that propels people to move from one level of faith to another. So what's disturbing the body politic today out there? Misinformation. a lack of truth. People who are at stage one of faith development are terrified of the truth. And for a multitude of complicated and sometimes even good reasons, I have had people sit in my office in this church and cry their hearts out because they knew something to be true. Let's say it's about the Bible isn't literal. Maybe that would be it. And they knew that if they announced that to the family that they are a part of, their family would reject them. Mm -hmm. But shouldn't faith communities be a place where we find the truth and not malarkey? (laughs) When I went to seminary and we studied the Gospel of John, I found out that the story of the woman taken in adultery, which you all know about, right, Jesus said, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. I found out that that is not in the most ancient manuscripts that we have. That was so exciting for me. Hmm. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Let's check out some of those manuscripts. A classmate of mine went to his church that he served, and he taught that in a sermon the next Sunday. Now, in seminary classes, we went to seminary Tuesday through Friday, and then we served the churches where we were Saturday through Monday, okay? So he went and he taught this using the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which some people refer to as the Reviled Standard Version Mm. of the Bible. Mm. The next Saturday, he went to his church to find out that his study had been packed up put in the hall in boxes, and he was asked to move out of the parsonage with his wife and his two children that week. Now, I have been very critical of churches, Protestant and Catholic alike, for not teaching the most up-to-date stuff we have about biblical research. But folks, it is hard in many, many places to be as free to speak as you might want to when your paycheck is dependent on what the people who hear you think about what is the truth.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Or at what level of faith development they are. I think the way to right wrongs of all sorts is to shine the, the light of truth on them. But you know, you can say certain words, thank God this is not one of the places, but you can say certain words in churches like evolution, Critical race theory, Jesus seminar, the Bible isn't literal, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. Those things that are accepted as mainline truths by major every seminary in the country and around the world, you can say that th- those things in most churches and you have trouble with a capital T. And I think with my heart hurting about the young Methodist clergy in our denomination who are gonna be faced at the next general conference with how do they lead their church. In their heart of hearts, they believe in full inclusion, but they're not gonna be allowed to vote for it. Hmm. It's a problem.
1: Hmm. When I think about your um, illustration of faith development over time, in, in universe development also, or in evolution, complexity always leads to greater harmony. So I think I sort of used this hand motion last week. As we complexify and diversify, actually things become more harmonious. Not same, just more harmonious. And I also was thinking about how my favorite story is Jacob wrestling with the angel. (laughs) And I so often think of faith development as grappling or wrestling. But I wanna offer that there's also ease. There can also be ease and joy and pleasure in faith development. It's not always wrestling and hard, but that is part of it. It's holding all of these things in tension, which I'm learning to do more and more. But we have so many superstitions about God. You know, you think about, you knew I was going to say something about baseball. It's playoff season. I love, I, I know, we don't have to talk about it. It's just, anyways, but baseball players and fans have superstitions. A lot of them have to do with what kind of underwear you wear and you know, not stepping on the foul line as you come on or off the field, uh, various twitches and taps that a batter will make in the box. Um, I was actually once a Red Sox fan because I lived in Boston. Nomar Garcia-Para, anybody know him? Nomar, as he was affectionately called in Boston. He had the most elaborate hand ritual I have ever seen coming up to the plate. between every pitch. This is not just when he first walked up. It was this kind of constant tapping and... Just, just, and then he'd get settled. <laughs> but that was his ritual. Contrary to popular belief, our rituals and our, our, our superstitions have nothing to do with the outcome of the game. I just said that. <laughs> Go ahead, change your underwear. It's postseason. <laughs> Similarly, we have these kind of conditional superstitious ideas about God. If I pray this way, I'll win favor. If I give money to this guy, he'll win favor for me. We think that there is sort of this transactional way of dealing with God. Or like these guys, if I wear a crown of bullets and hold an AK-47 in my service, I'll demonstrate God's power through mine. This is, this, you sent me this article this I did, week. this is this, a
0: church in Tennessee. Yeah, you or they just, just bought I tell land you, in you, Tennessee. You bet that any time there is some nonsense, either politically or religiously, <laughs> it's going to be from Tennessee or Texas. I,
1: mean, I know. <laughs> so true, so true. So these guys think they're staging a revolution. They are correct. We need a revolution, but not in the way that they imagine. They are the antithesis of Jesus's message of nonviolence and grace. There is um, a hip-hop artist I love who has long sung his beliefs about peace and justice, and he just released a new album. And in a spoken word piece called A Beautiful Revolution, the voiceover reads this. I'm going to see if it'll play in here. It might not. Okay. Nope. Here we go. Ah, it's too, too quiet. All right. I'll move on. (laughs) But the words say, what is a beautiful revolution? A beautiful revolution is when old and outdated ideas are replaced by new and better ones. Everybody's in peace. Everybody's shaking hands. A beautiful revolution, the truth is, revolution can be small. It is in the stillness. It can also be painful and warm because it's happening on the inside first. It can't happen out there unless it's happening in here. A beautiful revolution is a truthful revolution, a revolution that balances the extremes of inner and outer, light and dark, good and evil, masculine, feminine, black, white, people able to change other people's minds without any loss of life and without any shedding of blood. That's a beautiful revolution. I love this piece. Imago Dei is a theological concept which says that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. You are the image of God. I am the image of God. This is absolutely true. But if we limit Imago Dei to human beings or to human constructs, then we limit our imagination about God. It's essential to see ourselves in all that is. It's essential that we see all that is in us but it's also essential that we expand beyond the human. And when I say God, I even mean that we need to expand God between the God that I'm talking about. This is the Christianity without Christianity, (laughs) the God without God, right? Um, I'll close with a powerful dream image. It was one that I had in which I believe, and I talked through it with Bill, actually, that was really rewarding, that all of the images in it are Imago Dei. In the dream, this is the drawing I did in my journal after the dream, I was riding in a speedboat. I was going full speed with the wind and my hair and water was pelting my face. And I was aware that the water was so cold. I was standing up on a bench in the boat, holding onto and looking over the canopy of the speedboat. An older woman who was dressed in a yellow rain slicker and a hat drove the boat. She never spoke. I didn't really see her face. She just drove with this focused intensity. Suddenly, the boat crested at the top of a huge wave. I sat down in a little bit of fear and awe. I had been destabilized, and then another wave and another wave. The boat was rocking really hard to and fro, to and fro. The older woman did not stop driving at full speed. She was fierce and strong and weathered. And then to one side, a giant humpback whale rolled out from under the boat, keeping pace with its speed. She rolled up on her side with one fin up out of the water and then rolled back down, kind of slapping the water and splashing the boat. It was so The water was so cold, and it was dark. It was really inky black water. And it just kept spraying my face. The whole time, I held my bearings. And eventually, in the dream, The whale lifts her head up out of the water. She rolls to one side and she just looks at me with this one giant eye, probably the size of my head. (laughs) And she's looking into my small human eyes and I slid over in this rocking boat and I just put my hand on the side of her face behind her eye. And we stayed like that in the dream until she rolled away and sent the boat up onto another crest of a wave. So in the dream, the whale is the image of God. She's playful and she's strong. The ocean, too, is mysterious and cold and wild. The writers of John, more specifically Jesus, is challenging us to expand our consciousness, to see the image of God in all of these ways, to experience that the threads that connect us to every other thing are both known and unknown. Within and without.
0: You have every powerful symbol of spirituality. Holy in Lord, that, that was dream. a
1: that was a doozy.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, it was one of those that you just go, I can't forget this. <clears> if you ever,
0: uh, when you go across and uh, are involved in the worship service, look up at the top of the church. It's the bottom of a boat.
2: hmm
0: It's the bottom of a ship.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The earliest symbol of Christianity was the fish. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Carl Jung said the ocean is God. And the, just so many archetypical symbols in there. So um, next Sunday we're going to talk, talk about the taste of the new wine. And, and I, I'm, I'm just going to ask you to think about how many times wine appears in the story, uh, both in Judaism and uh, in the Christian story. In the great, great, the Jews had a genius for liturgy. I mean, they were liturgical geniuses. And probably the most carefully crafted piece of Jewish liturgy is a Seder meal. It's not a worship service, but it's a, it's a liturgy nonetheless. And what marks the liturgy are five cups of wine that are drunk throughout the, the Jewish meal. We'll talk about that next week. So my favorite line in the Gospel of John is John 10.10. 10. <laughs> I've come that you might have expanded life or as Peterson puts it, more and better life than you ever dreamed of. And the reason uh, that the matter of gender plays in this is that when we overemphasize masculine traits of the sacred, many women, transgender, intersex persons feel less than. Marcus Borg once wrote that there are many good reasons to identify and honor the images of God that are throughout the Bible that are not masculine. For one thing, male images of God are often associated with power, authority, and judgment, and they can be used to create a God to appease, that is, please me or else. Male images of God support patriarchy, and male images of God lend to domination over nature. Mother nature, the earth is often mother nature. And Female images of God suggest another path to walk. I have come to show you the way. And Sarah Grant, the line that we both love so much from Sarah Grant is, It is not the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it is the way. So... The female image of God is the God who once gives birth to all of us Mm -hmm. and all that is. God has our well-being at heart like a mother does. God's attached to us with a tender love like a mother's love. This tender love can also be fierce. Yes, it can. (laughs) Both masculine and feminine energies, as I said, teach the way. I am the way. And it's not a way about avoiding punishment or about going to heaven which is what most of us learn at first or second stage of faith development. It's about loving God. And it's about loving what God loves. And what God loves is all of creation. And what God loves as all of creation is symbolized by the people who are assembled in this room right now. No matter where you go this week no matter what happens remember this you carry precious cargo so watch your step and we'll see you here next sunday thank you